we have the opportunity now to listen to the Dhamma. So we should sit in meditation and bring the mind to peace. And we take this to be uh, both meditating and also listening to these teachings of truth at the same time. It's a, a good practice because when the mind is well established in peace, then this allows for our understanding of the Dhamma to grow deeper. We see that the Dhamma is something that's extremely subtle, very refined. And when the Buddha awakened to this Dhamma, uh, then he enjoyed the bliss of that liberation for 49 days. And he was also contemplating the Dhamma at that time as well, this Dhamma which he had realized And he saw just how subtle, just how refined it was. And he got the feeling that there was no one who would be able to to realize that. Because the beings, the humans in this world, um, they have such strong kilesas which cover over their minds. And so when he was enjoying the bliss of this liberation, then there wasn't the intention to teach. The intention came up to to not teach because he saw just how difficult it would be uh, for the beings, the humans um, of this world to gain knowledge of this Dhamma. But he also had a heart which was fully imbued with the Brahma Viharas, with these uh, divine abidings or divine emotions. And he had this great compassion within his heart, this boundless compassion, which produced the feeling that there would be people who would know, who would understand this Dhamma if he went and taught it. He thought back to his previous teachers who had uh, taught him meditation uh, before he awakened. And he realized that the both of them were in a very deep state of jhana, but it was still a worldly jhana, a lokya jhana. And they weren't sending their minds out at all. Their sense organs weren't receiving any sense impressions. And they were just there in that state of deep samadhi, enjoying the happiness of it. And in that state, they weren't able to realize or to know Uh, the Dhamma, if the Buddha were to try to teach them. And so they missed out on this very good opportunity, even before they had taught the Buddha. And so it was a good opportunity for them. And the Buddha then recollected the five ascetics who had attended on him and had been with him for a very long time. While he was engaging in these extreme ascetic practices and torturing his body, Uh, But these five ascetics had run away from him, and they had gone to the uh, Deer Park, the place where various ascetics, rishis, uh, recluses go to practice, um, a park that was uh, close to Varanasi. So as the Buddha thought about them, he could see that they would be able to realize, to know the Dhamma. And so he traveled to teach them, and he traveled by foot uh, to help them out, to teach them the Dhamma. 
We see that this is a display of his great, his immense compassion. Because it would be possible for him to just enjoy the bliss of the awakened mind and just be sitting in meditation all by himself and there'd be no need to exhaust his body. But even though he travelled these long distances, his heart wasn't tired at all. His heart was freed of the defilements of greed, hatred and delusion. There was no clinging, no attachment there within it. But it was through his profound compassion that he went to teach. So each day um, in the morning, before the Buddha went on alms round, he would spread his awareness and look to see who was ripe for hearing the Dhamma and being able to attain and know the Dhamma, who had the Bharami to be able to receive it and be able to gain the eye of the Dhamma, who could understand these teachings, understand the truth of his words. So the Buddha did this and he realized that the five ascetics would be able to understand. And so he walked from Gaya to the deer park outside of Varanasi, And this journey took him 11 days. It was a journey of 250 kilometers. And when he first reached and met the five ascetics, they didn't yet want to listen to him. Uh, But through his compassion, he kind of endured and he still taught. And this compassion had been within his heart for a very long time. Ever since he had set his mind um, and determined uh, to be a fully self-awakened Buddha, in order to help all beings to gain freedom from samsara. So this compassion is what uh, drew him to cultivating his bharami for countless lifetimes. And for us, we can see just within one life, with so much suffering, so much difficulty. And but the Buddha endured the suffering for countless lifetimes in order to attain to the Dhamma so that he could teach beings, so that he could help them out, in order for them to be able to gain awakening, to gain knowledge. So for us, having been born into this world, we take the Buddha as the highest refuge of our hearts, and the Dhamma and the Sangha as well. And then we try to practice following uh, what it was that allowed the Buddha to awaken The Buddha, before he gained awakening, he practiced these um, torturous practices and really put his body through immense pain. Uh, But he thought that this wasn't able to allow him to attain to the Dhamma. This wouldn't be able to bring him to freedom. And the extent to which he tortured his body Um, If it was a normal person who did this, who practiced in that way, they would die for sure. But through the Bharami of the Buddha, he didn't pass away, and that he had set his heart on awakening in this lifetime. And he tortured his body to the point where he fainted three times. His body became immensely uh, emaciated, like we see in the image that's there, in the cave in which he practiced these ascetic practices. There are some Thai people who have made a Buddha Rupa, an image of him, um, taking up these ascetic practices. 
But as he was doing this, he contemplated, and he realized that torturing his body wouldn't be able to allow him to attain to Dhamma, to truth. And so he came back to eating again, so his body would regain some strength. And uh, so this was on the 15th day of the sixth lunar month. And Lady Sujata, she offered milk rice to the Buddha. So this is a kind of rice which is mixed with cow's milk and honey. And she offered it to him under a banyan tree. And he hadn't eaten for such a long time, so he took 49 mouthfuls of food. His skin was so thin uh, that Lady Sujata thought that he was a deva. And next he went to cross the Naranjara River. And we all know that it's a very wide river and sometimes it's um, unpassable because uh, there can be a lot of water that fills it up. And it's a very kind of clean water because this water flows down from the Himalaya mountains. But the Buddha passed over this river and then went to sit under the Bodhi tree. And as he sat there, he tried facing many different directions, but none of them really felt right. None of them felt like they were kind of in balance or just right. But when he sat facing the east, then he thought that this is an appropriate position to be seated in. Then he took up the practice of anapanasati, of being mindful of his breath. And he recollected the time when he was just seven years old, and he was sitting under a tree and being mindful of his breath and his mind entered into first jhana. These factors of vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekakata were there. The initial and sustained application of the mind and happiness and joy and one-pointedness. And he could reach this at just seven years old. But we should also understand that the jhanas of a bodhisattva, they have more energy than those of normal beings. Because for many, many lives, countless lives, uh, the bodhisattvas, they have uh, developed very, very deep and refined jhanas before. So the Buddha recollected this time when he was seven years old, and he took up that practice again of looking at his breath underneath the Bodhi tree. And so he attained to awakening there, uh, this awakening to truth. And that's why we call it the Bodhi tree, this tree of awakening. And so he sat underneath that tree and went into jhana and then came to contemplate. And the first knowledge arose for him. Um, And this was during the first watch of the night from 6pm until 10pm. And it's an important knowledge that he gained Uh, the ability to be able to recollect his previous lives. And he could see how this mind of his had been born and had died already so many times. And he had gone to all kinds of places, been born as a human, been born as devas, as um, brahmas, as hell beings, as animals. There were all kinds of births. And these had all happened in the past. And he recollected a hundred lives, a thousand lives, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, millions, many, many millions of lives. And no matter how far he sent his mind back, still there were becomings, there were realms, there were births. So having recollected this 
already. He saw just how many lives um, he had been born as, and or born into, and still there was birth, still there was death. Sometimes being born as a human, sometimes an animal, sometimes in hell, sometimes in heaven, sometimes in the Brahma world. And so he understood uh, that that it was this mind that had been taken around in this countless cycle, or this endless cycle of birth and death for countless lifetimes already. After gaining this knowledge, the Buddha then went into samadhi again and gained a second kind of knowledge during the second watch of the night. And so during this, he could see the karma of beings, the actions of beings which lead them to gain birth in various states. So if people keep the five precepts, then they gain a human body. And if during that life they also keep the five precepts, um, then they gain a human mind. The people who don't have good sila, then they get, when they're born, they get born lower than the human. Maybe as an animal, maybe in hell. And so he knew what karma it was that would bring beings to be born in these various states. You could see how the ten kinds of unskillful kamma, um, the ten kinds of unskillful mind states, um, become the causes for beings to be born in the realms of deprivation. And when they produce these kinds of kamma, then they fall, and they fall lower than the human realm. And there are also skillful kinds of karma. There's the goodness that we create through our generosity, through virtue, and through meditation. And this is what brings the mind up, raises it to the realm of a deva. But devas, they just stay here, they rest in this place of happiness temporarily, and they're not able to abide there forever. Uh, because the reason that they're born as a deva is because of the goodness that they have created. The merit brings its results and they gain this heavenly birth. But when that merit runs out, then they must fall. They must get born again, maybe as a human or maybe in a state lower than human. And many, many do get born in these lower states. Also, if beings can enter into jhana, then they can go to the Brahma worlds. And there are many that can go up there. But these too are impermanent. These two do not last forever. And when the energy, the power of that jhana finishes, then they have to get born again. Maybe as a deva, maybe as a human. And when they get born as a deva or a human, then they have to get born again after that. They have to carry on in the cycle. And so there are these three worlds that we can get born into. And there's the world or the realm of sensuality, uh, the form world and the formless world. And the mind spins around in this way, cycling between birth and death, birth and death, for countless lifetimes, for so many lifetimes. And so we should think for ourselves, we have this life, and then there was a life before this, and then before that, and then before that. And we just can't find when our first life was. And in each and every realm that we got born into, each and every life, we experience constant suffering. And even though we sometimes call what we feel happiness, what it actually is, 
is just a reduction in the suffering that we experience. But in reality, there's no happiness there. If we feel a kind of happiness, that just becomes the cause for suffering to arise. So we've been spinning in the cycle of samsara for such a long time already, and it can go on endlessly. There's just life after life after life without stop. So the Buddha gained this knowledge, this knowledge into the kamma of beings, what makes them be born into the worlds of a human or deva or a brahma. There was nothing which obstructed the vision of the Buddha's heart. And he gained this knowledge during the second watch, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. But he hadn't yet attained to Buddhahood, to awakening. And it was this third knowledge which was really important. The Buddha, his mind was in a very subtle and refined state at that point. And uh, he wasn't contemplating just like a normal person. His contemplation into the body, into feelings, into the mind, they weren't normal. And he was able to contemplate right into the very subtle and refined level of the Dhamma. He could see that what it was that caused beings to be caught in the cycle of birth and death was the delusion, the ignorance there in this heart, in their hearts, this avijja, which is not knowing. The hearts don't know, they're deluded, and they have this proliferation. And when we get born, we get a feeling of a self that comes up. There's uh, this vijnana, this sense consciousness, and there's physical and mental phenomena. And then there's uh, pasa, the uh, contact, and we gain, uh, and then we become deluded in the feelings that we experience. And then there's craving, there's clinging, there's becoming, there's birth, and there's suffering. And this process, it goes back and forth, back and forth. And due to the subtle state of the Buddha's mind, he was able to separate out each of these stages. He was able to know all of them clearly. Know what it was exactly that brought beings to be caught and to spin around between birth and death endlessly. And you could see that this was the delusion in their hearts. And so knowledge arose for the Buddha. As light arose, knowledge arose, wisdom arose within his heart. And he gained clarity about what it is that causes suffering. And to these four noble truths, he knew suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path that leads us to be freed from that suffering. He knew this clearly. And so at dawn, the Buddha gained awakening, and he became the Buddha. And then he enjoys the bliss of that liberation. So the day that he gained this awakening was on the same day that he was born, and the same day that he passed into Nibbana. So for us, we have this faith, faith and belief that the Buddha is real, the Dhamma that he attained to is real. And when beings put that Dharma into practice, then they really do gain freedom from suffering. And that there are those people who have followed these teachings, and we call them the Sangha, and they know this for real. 
and they know it right within their own hearts. And so it doesn't discriminate, this knowledge, it doesn't discriminate between being a male or a female, that both are able to do it. Both laity and monastics are able to experience this. Whenever people put these teachings into practice, then they'll follow, or they'll see the Dhamma for themselves. They'll be able to really attain to that Dhamma. It happens independent of time. It's not that we can just see the Dhamma in the summer or the spring or the winter or autumn. Just see it at one time, but not another time. That we can just experience it on this year, but not another year. That's not correct. Whenever people practice the Dhamma well, then they will gain knowledge into the Dhamma right then. And it depends upon our actions. And our actions are the very foundation, they're the very principle of the Buddhasasana, this principle of kamma. And so kamma, it's our actions of body, speech, and mind. Uh, what we call gaya kamma, waji kamma, and mano kamma. And so the good kinds of acts of body, speech, and mind, we call these skillful kamma. And then there are the bad acts, the unskillful kamma. And these are papa, these are harmful acts. So for us, we're Buddhists, and we take the Buddha as our highest refuge, and there's no other refuge for us. And we have this great firmness in our respect towards the Buddha. And if this is very firm, then nothing can shake that faith and that respect. And we see that really these things, what, what's the most important is um, to see how it all depends upon our actions. And if we understand that, if we take our actions to be the most important thing, then we are real Buddhists. And being real Buddhists, then we have this firm faith and conviction in the Buddha and in his teachings, something which isn't able to shake. and We won't believe what other people say but rather what we believe in is our own actions. We have this firm conviction in them that in, in, in the goodness of our actions, in our generosity, in our virtue, in our meditation, and these become the very foundation of our minds. And we don't depend upon external things, but rather we have this high respect for the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and so we come to take up this path of practice and meditation in order to bring our minds to peace. And in making our minds peaceful, there are many ways to do this. We can watch the in-breath and the out-breath, or we can contemplate the body as being a heap of elements, or being a heap of uh, change and stress and not-self. And this is the method of using wisdom to develop samadhi. And so we study and we put these teachings into practice as well. And perhaps each hour we can chant the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha one time. We also recollect death as well, that now one hour has passed, our lives are a little bit closer to death. So say if, and then we go back to our work again, we carry on with our duties, and then at the end of that hour, the next hour, then we chant the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha again, and contemplate death again. 
in order for us to be heedful. And if we can do this, then our greed, hatred and delusion will reduce. And when our greed, hatred and delusion reduces, then there'll be peace in our minds. There'll be this happiness there within our hearts. And so we don't take external things to be our refuge. But what we do is we take the Dhamma. And we depend upon this Dhamma. We depend upon our own actions and the goodness of our actions. We take and have refuge in our actions of body, speech, and mind. We recollect the goodness of the Buddha, his virtues, how he had this incomparable compassion, <laughs> this great boundless compassion that had no end to it. And when the Buddha attained to awakening, he went out to teach. And what he taught was that all physical and mental things, all of them are unstable, they're all stressful, they're all not self. And all 84,000 teachings of the Buddha gather together in this one teaching, that all physical and mental phenomena are unstable, stressful, and not self. And so we should get our minds to know this, to understand this. When they've been brought to peace, then we study this so that we gain knowledge of it. And through this knowledge, then brightness and happiness will arise within our hearts. We won't harm each other. And when we don't harm each other, when we live in our societies, um, abiding by the rules and regulations of that society, then they'll be peaceful, harmonious places. And we don't depend upon any external happiness. But rather, what we do is we make sure our actions, our karma, is good. And when our karma is good, then that will give us the results of happiness. So therefore, for us being Buddhists, we should use this practice and offer our practice as homage to the fully self-awakened Buddha. And through doing this, we'll gain happiness and peace within our own hearts, happiness and peace within our families and with our, in, in our workplaces. And there'll be growth, there'll be development there. And so this is probably enough of an explanation of the teachings of the Buddha for now. <laughs>